Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All Things Crime. This is Jared, your host. I am excited to be here and just have to let you know that our sponsor for this half hour is uh, MVAC Systems. MVAC is a wet vacuum DNA collection system, and it's our primary supporter. And if you have any trouble getting a DNA profile, then the MVAC is the way you want to go. So uh, call MVAC, either go to www.m-vac.com, or you can call the office at 801-523-3962. And uh, I also want to thank our guest today, Tom Myers. This guy, uh, not only is he a former uh, FBI ERT leader, CSI extraordinaire, but he's also a ranger and uh, served in the U.S. Army. So we're going to get all that story, and I'll tell you what, uh, rangers lead the way, right, Tom? Rangers lead the way. Amen, yeah, brother. Yeah, good to be here, Jared. Good to yeah, see you. Yeah, good to see you too, man. I'm, I finally, uh, finally got you on here, and um, you know I'm excited to talk about this. So one of the things that really um, kind of pulled the trigger for me is I, I saw a post, uh, and I can't remember what platform is on. I mean, we're connected in so many different ways. It's uh, it, you know, it's awesome, but. Got to keep in, in touch with all your uh, all your law enforcement and, and army buddies, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, but also, um, yeah, you know, one of the things you said was, you know, being able to interview people is is the key, one of the keys to to solving cases and you know solving a lot of these crimes out there and you know getting you know they, I mean they they have whole shows about it, you know, the uh, forty eight hours and. Uh, or another 40, next 48 hours, whatever the, the, the title of it is. But, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the things that I know you were expert at. Uh, but there's tons of stuff that, that you did throughout your career. So why don't, why don't we start, I think, with why you got into law enforcement. I mean, you, it's obvious why you went into the Army and became a Rangers, because you're a stud. But other, other than that, uh, uh, what do you think, man? What, what, what inspired you to get into law enforcement? Right. Uh, expert, like you said, uh, experts, anybody from out of town. So, right. I, I meet the requirement then. And um, what inspired me to get into law enforcement? So my parents were both in it. My mom was a crime scene technician for almost 30 years and she would bring her home or work home with uh, with her. And I would get to see all the gore and everything else. And uh, my dad was an agent for a few years and a reserve police officer and worked in security as well. And I've got family all in the uh, law enforcement. So as somebody jokingly said, uh, one of the old time cops, uh, I never had a chance. So it's kind of all I know. And yeah, I, uh, my mom was in forensics and I got into it many years before CSI even came on ago and uh, worked my way through the different processes. I guess I'm a bit of a scientist, frustrated scientist or would be scientist at heart. And um, that sort of led the way uh, as a police officer before uh, in between careers before I became an FBI agent. And that's what I did was uh, forensics first and kept doing that same thing as a detective and then got on with the FBI for the next 25 years. Awesome. And I have to uh, let everybody know, you know, that I know there's a lot of things going on with the FBI right now that some of some of the listeners may not uh, really agree with, but Tom's one of the good guys. And I'll tell you what, right now, the vast majority of the agents that I've met are people that I put my life in their hands. And Tom is definitely one of them. So 
I appreciate everything that you did for the country, Tom. And I know, um, you know, you did it right. So when you, um, where you started CSI was down in South Florida, right? Right. A small police department there in South Florida. Yep. And I, and the luxury, cause it was small to sort of, uh, work my way right into it. And, and, um, it wasn't as parochial as some of the bigger agencies. So I was able to test a few things. And then I had the, the ends with, the with my mom working nearby, of course, in the police department. And then the sheriff's office down that way was extremely good. Very, very good. In fact, all these years later, uh, probably the best I've ever seen. And I was able to work with them a bit and do a brief internship with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, Stuart Mosher and all the other boys there at, um, I shouldn't just say boys, that's just kind of a general term, but you know, all the folks there at County are just, are just amazing. Mm-hmm. So still keep uh, my Jedi masters. So. Yeah. One Kenobi, Stuart Mosher. Yeah. You know, and now that Stuart's retired, I'll tell you the, some of the guys that are coming in behind him that are really uh, picking up the ball and, and running with it, not only in their own research, but also in uh, developing new techniques to get, you know, mm-hmm. DNA off of shell casings and all sorts of crazy stuff that those guys are doing down there all the time. So yeah, it's a good, good bunch of people to be uh, hooked up with if you're in forensics. So, well, you can tell the agencies that are really cutting edge because they embrace the technology. And of course, there's a bit of uh, the funding comes faster with discretionary funds from a sheriff versus you know a, a bigger government. But um, yeah, very cutting edge, and they're bringing embracing technology. And they were doing it years ago. Argon lasers, uh, unheard of back in the early '90s. Yeah. So some of the technologies that you saw come out during your career. What are some of the major ones? Mm, let's see. So, right, the argon laser. And then if when switching from the police department to the FBI, it's very formalized, very parochial. And they have certain ways of doing it to protect the integrity of how they investigate and how the lab works. Lots of free flowing when as a police officer, things move very, very fast. And it's different. It's, I'll just say it's different. Let's see the technology. Certainly working our way backwards. The genetic investigative genealogy is got to be number one in the past 100 years, 50 years, 100 years. Ambex right up there, number two, probably just because, I mean, you're pulling DNA off of porous items and uh, getting hits that are, you know, unheard of. The next generation identification, the, the computer program that branched off of APHIS is getting a lot of hits these days. The computers, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think my way through this. The databasing is just stunningly good. I mean, things are getting solved just by people looking at public records and making comparisons. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's, I think also, you know, one of the positives that did come out of like uh, the, the crime shows like CSI when they came on is that there's a whole, I, I don't want to say society out there, but there's a, there's a massive group of people now that are just almost like uh, crime sleuths and mm-hmm. they just love it. You know, they, they go to crime con, you know, which is a, a big conference that I start. I've started going to, and especially with a podcast, it makes total sense. But also there's just things that they pick up and, and Cheryl McCollum is talking about this all the time. She's like, nobody can have all of the information and all of the expertise and everything. And it's just impossible. It's just way too complicated. I mean, there's no such thing anymore as, you know, as far as like Sherlock Holmes types, you know, that it, where one guy can, can solve a case. and Nowadays, it, it takes a huge team effort and a lot of times even multi-agencies, but being able to understand, and I, I think this is actually a key to every detective that's out there, 
is being the detective. Yes, you're you're in charge, but you're kind of the quarterback and you're part of the team. You just got to lead the investigation. But the most important thing I've found for detectives is to know when to call in people with certain expertise to help you with a case and understanding, you know, technologies like what you're talking about, but also even just saying, hey, you know what? I don't know what I'm looking at. And I, it's time to call in somebody like Dr. Lee Meller, or, you know, something like that, where they have an expertise in serial killings or, you know, forensics, genealogy, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many people out there that can help. And one of the big cases that the MVAC was just involved with, there was a lady in California that matched a picture that was released from a Utah agency with a picture that was released from an, uh, I think it's, um, well, it's in Ohio. I can't remember the exact uh, agency, now, but they released them within about seven days of each other. This lady in California saw the two on the internet, matched them up, called up the agency and said, Hey, I think I've, I think I know who your, or your uh, Jane Doe victim is. Awesome. Great. Yeah. It's just crazy. So there's all sorts of stuff out there. And it's, I mean, when I was coming up, solving a cold case was, I don't even think I heard of one unless somebody walked in and confessed. Very rare did it happen. And, you know, a few more things came to mind when you said that. I think it's called Mission with a Purpose. I, I apologize if I screwed that up for these guys. But the, there's the divers that go out. They, they look at casework and, man, they're killing it out there. They've got to be over 30. We started databasing the genetic investigative genealogy when it first broke after GSK, Golden State Killer, and knew this was an awesome uh, uh, investigative tool. And we went from that one, Bear Brook in Delaware right away, and then it was four soon we were up to eight and then now it's just it's expected that's why i see i see a resurgence going back to mbac because the low-hanging fruit is about to be exhausted all the uh, the expectations on these cases that have stuff sitting in the lockers and evidence and they know it now they got to go back and look at stuff where those skin cells is uh, trapped into rope clothing whatever porous objects are out there and that's going to be the next phase and the next wave of it. It's going to overwhelm them. And it has overwhelmed a lot of the bench workers, the DNA bench workers, uh, because they're getting so many hits. But um, that's where the private companies come in. And they're, they're doing a good job uh, taking up the slack. Othram is killing it. I don't want to just slight anybody else. But I, I, I know with them, um, let me tell you, a civilian, uh, Ellen Leach in uh, Mississippi, she is killing it. She's got eight solved herself, just a civilian working it. And that's, um, she databases and runs a website herself. So as an example, just citizen or uh, journalism at its best. Investigative sleuth, like you said, armchair sleuth, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's people that uh, just because they have a different perspective, that alone may be the primary reason that it uh, goes a different direction. And, you know, who knows? It's it's one of those where having, having multiple mm-hmm. people look at something, you know, the worst case is you're exactly where you are right now. And right. the best case is you solve it. And I, I, I just think it's, it's kind of sad when you hear sometimes when people are like, I oh, just, you know, I have one swab left of, you know, the evidence that we took. I just don't want to send it to the lab because, you know, then I won't have anything to do. It's like, what if that one swab solves your case? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a tough call. I don't want to, yeah, it's a, it's a tough call because you use it and the technology exists in six months and you just uh, consumed that uh, last swab and boy, interesting times. And, and uh, you know, I'll add another thing. Gary Childs out of Baltimore uh, on the keepers, stunningly good, probably 50 years of investigative experience. He's retired and still living in Maryland. 
But with that, not only comes the experience, but that historical knowledge. So he remembers that all the way back. And you just simply can't capture everything in investigative notes. Dave Davis and uh, the guys over in Montgomery County that solved the Lion Sisters kidnapping. It's stunningly good work. It was staring at them. You just had to go back through it and, and database and all and catch all that material. It was in uh, The Last Stone by Mark Bowden. I, I believe is what the name of the book was. But, you know, exceptional casework right there and what those guys were doing. Uh, just, you know, close to me in Maryland, but I could say. But uh, they have the historical, and when you go back to it, allegiances change. The people who were threatening or terrorizing, the, the witnesses that were around that are gone, or now they feel safer and, and information is shared so much more readily. And so you could have somebody... You can have something be solved in the next jurisdiction and you just pick it up in the newspaper. And I just pushed out to somebody on Facebook. I, you may have seen it, but they solved the uh, murder of a police officer about 50 years ago, I think it was, in Montgomery County. And my, my inability to articulate that, right, just tells you how many good things are happening. So tell us maybe some details about one of those cases that you thought was such uh, extraordinary uh, investigative work. Uh, it's in the book, The Last Stone, Mark Bowden, Black Hawk Down author. And I got a small piece of it towards the end. And um, in fact, we debated using MVAC on that case, but strong part of it. And by the way, I should caveat this. This is all out open source right now. It's in the book. The photos are in the book and everything else. But inside that book right there, those guys went back through the casework going all the way back to day one when the two little girls were kidnapped from the mall and uh, mid-70s, and and they tracked it all the way back, and they tracked everybody's allegiances. And of course, leopards don't change their spots. And a lot of these things are very solvable, simply by looking at who your involvees are in the case. And when you see somebody's got a criminal history for pled down to aggravated assault or criminal mischief or um, some kind of minor charging, you look a little bit deeper, there's a sex charge in there. And that's exactly what happened. These guys worked it and worked and worked until they broke them. And um, Bowden calls it a masterpiece of criminal investigative work. But yeah, and the lumen all lit up in the basement 50 years later. Uh, you can't get better than that. Can't get better than that. So I, I'm just uh, assuming then that the two girls were kidnapped from the mall. They took them to a house. Yeah, yeah, right. So forgive my trepidation on this because, um, you know, I, I the case is closed, but it's not mine really to speak about. I had a very small part of it. And uh, so that caveat being there. That's what happened is they were kidnapped, they were murdered inside the house. And what the detectives believed were the, the voids in the area where this, this horrible deed happened, meaning there was a substrate there, meaning wood or chopping material or something like that. It stood up to what they thought happened and everything else. And uh, yeah, we had been back and forth in a support role. And and right, and eventually they, they pinned down who the person is and he's serving life uh, down in Virginia, case in chiefs in Virginia. They transported the girls down to Virginia and burned them up several times and over several days. And um, that's the end of the story. Yeah. Wow. Ultimately, what, what do you feel solved the case? Okay. So time, time solved it for sure. Cause as time goes on, you have your, 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 your offenders, they don't change. Uh, sex offenders don't change. And as time went on, you could see the, the evolution of it and the, uh, the subject or suspect had been engaged in that for a long time. So, of course, it all makes sense when you look back on it, but you don't at the time. You can't pick that off. The databasing certainly helps. Ability now to grab information so quickly and identify people and get criminal histories is just stunningly good right now and identify where people are at. This precedes really cell phone tracking. What else is it? Improved roads, you're able to get and communicate with police officers. I mean, I'm not 
that old compared to these guys who've been working real senior guys. But I can remember a time when you had to justify making a long distance phone call. And if you didn't have a reason for it and put in that log, you would you'd be explaining yourself to the bosses at a police department. So you can see that makes it really difficult to solve things back in the day. And the guys who know that, the older guys that still have an affinity for it, realize those shortcomings. So they're able to get right through them right now. And they always thought maybe something was over in Portland or things like that. And it makes it very easy to do things with a keystroke, which would be a three-day wait to get a driver's license photo, for example. It will all come surface mail, hard copy, delivered to you. Yeah. Well, it's almost like, say, the 70s and earlier, everything was considered local. You know, it's like yeah. all of your perpetrators are going to be local, solving a case, looking outside of the immediate surroundings and, and the people of the neighborhood, let, let alone the, or, or even at most the city. It was pretty rare back then because we didn't travel near as much as we did now. Yeah. You know, nowadays, it's like people get in the car and they'll relocate and they'll, I mean, everything's available. Plus, perpetrators, especially with the internet, they can identify victims hundreds of miles away. And, and that's just a short day's drive away. And they can be in a totally different place, but they can find victims a lot easier nowadays. Right. And the traveling serial killers knew this. And this was the golden age of the serial killer. Of course, the DNA took them out of so much out of commission. But that's what they were able to do was just slalom between these agencies and these jurisdictions. And they're just gone. Yeah, and the communication between agencies, I think, is so much better now. You know, we have these databases that everybody's contributing to. And so finding out who put certain DNA up into the database, I mean, you, that's that's something that, that law enforcement agencies can communicate back and forth. So just it, it, it seems to me like the one-to-one cooperation may not be quite there, but like interagency cooperation and uh, understanding and communication, I think is, is a lot better nowadays and it's getting better all the time. So, and you have to be because otherwise a lot of these guys just will continue to get away with things. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm looking at something from the 1930s right now. And uh, literally, yeah, that was, you know, the way information was passed then was newspaper and police circulars. So amazingly enough, things like, true detective, these sort of lurid pieces that we would know when we were younger on were very much the police circulars and how information was shared and the public read these things. So that's uh, actually how well, I think it was Dillinger was caught out in Phoenix. I'm sorry, it escapes me at the moment. But yes, yeah, somebody read it and handed it over to the police right there and they grabbed them up. It could have been Tucson. I'm, I'm mistaken on that, but I'm like, you're kidding me. So that was sort of a lost art and, and the NCIC supplanted that quite a bit. And the public was removed quite a bit until America's Most Wanted came online. I mean, you tell them a bit of a crime historian, too. But I also look at these things for solvability and what were the gaps and the flaws in the system as those things evolved or didn't evolve. And there's an example of something that didn't evolve. It just sort of fell apart of those police circulars. So they're very difficult to get a hold of. But people were very engaged in the gangster film days. Well, and I also think these conferences, whether they're training conferences, you know, homicide investigator associations, things like that, just best practices, all of those kind of things, you know, rather than only learning from the senior detectives in, a, in your agency, you know, you can learn from experts, not only in person, but these are so much information online and, um, you know, books and stuff like what you're doing. I mean, it's just, it's just phenomenal. So for all of those that want to get into the law enforcement and are interested in helping solve crimes and most importantly, helping victims, you know, get the justice that they deserve, then to me, the, the amount of information that you can consume out there is just 
there's way more much, way more information than you will ever be able to consume. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's amazing what some of the techs are doing and how they're coming up with creative ways. Like you talked about the shell casings with the MVAC and um, they're just inventing ways of making the machine better, lighting systems, everything, getting so good at it. And it's uh, inspiring, it's inspiring to see other people doing that. Oh, yeah. You know, a manufacturer may develop some kind of a technology that is designed for one thing. And once you once it's out in the field and in the hands of the people that are using it, they'll find all sorts of creative ways to adapt to it and and be able to use strengths of one device and combine it with others. And it's yeah, the ability to solve cases nowadays is just phenomenal. It's fun to watch. Uh, the um, jumping back a little bit, you asked why I got into this, and I had a thought. And and the guys that I it really inspired me. That really just they 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 don't sleep. They work these jobs. They know everything about it. They they eat, sleep, and live with it is amazing to me. And, and it was so inspiring to me. So my moment of that was younger on. I, I was a police explorer in Hollywood, Florida. And I worked across the street in the uh, mall that was there. So I was there that night at the police department when Adam Walsh was, was kidnapped a few hours earlier. And I remember all the, uh, everything, what they were doing and, and how it just came from the kid must have walked off to it. Was, this was the real thing. It just didn't happen in Hollywood, Florida. And uh, it did. So it just changed me forever when I realized what this really was all about. In fact, um, I said my mom was a crime scene tech and I'm trying to remember if she had, she was in the unit yet or not, but that stayed these years, the Adam Walsh case and the, the aftermath of it and everything else and seeing the little boy's picture and being there that night and seeing the police respond and being out on the searches and, uh, and they're working right across the street, knowing that area very well, knowing the Sears, all that stuff. And uh, those guys, I think, experienced that vicarious trauma from seeing the, the slaughter of these people and what happens with, with sex assault or murder or anything in between. And it drives them. So I, I think the police get a bad rap these days. Public generally doesn't understand how much goes into those investigations and what they have to deal with. And it stays with you. You know, I'm working stuff now into retirement and I knew some people at Hollywood who went to their grave, literally still looking at the Adam Walsh case to make sure it was, it was correct and was accurate. Yeah. I've had many discussions with people, you know, on the show, d- different uh, interviews that I've done with, you know, the psychology types that really understand the trauma that people go through as victims, as victims' families, but also the investigators. And I, I don't think you can overemphasize how much, you know, just emotional, just trauma and investment that these guys put into these cases. And when, when they don't, get solved. You know, it may take years and years and years, uh, decades even to solve some of these cases. And that works. Yeah. And some are never, and that, you know, that destroys a little, a little piece of that investigator too. And, you know, which is why suicides are, are so high and just PTSD and things like that. Once you actually understand the police, what they go through and, you know, detectives and Everything from seeing a little baby that's been thrown in a dumpster all the way to, you know, someone that's been stabbed a hundred times. You know, it's uh, being able to still do your job while you're processing that. And especially as a a parent, you know, those kind of things affect you. And for all of the 800,000 law enforcement that are still out there on the job and still working to, to keep us safe, the sheer fact that those guys don't just walk off the job when they're so underappreciated and they're, they're still, they're going through so much and yet they, they continue to do it to me is just a, a testament to their character. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? 
yeah, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt every time because the sheer fact that they're even there to me is a uh, a huge notch in the cap, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not to uh, sound melodramatic, but when you see the brilliance of of a good interview, our theme here, a good interrogation, and the the tools these guys have developed who don't come from they can come from anywhere anywhere like i said military they can come from blue collar background anywhere you think of but they are so good at it and they just develop that and they they're they developed it because they have a passion for it and it just lives with them they stay as detectives and um i suppose we were going to speak about interview interrogation wouldn't be a bad time to jump an inter- good interview is a lot like a good leader they they care they understand that an interview process is a complex process. Like the analogy I described both of them is that it's like an organic element that has to constantly be adjusted. And the analogy I use is, is for getting an engine running. You have to have in that carburetor, in that combustion chamber. That's really where it's very critical in that interview or that critical part, the critical mass of that investigation where we either move on because we've exhausted all leads, we get a confession or we find something forensically that's where it has to be managed and developed very well. So, you know, with it, with an engine, you got to have fuel, air, spark, and combustion for all that to happen or the engine doesn't start. So in the same way, you have to have all those, those things that happen and, and it happens from being a good investigator, have the right person in there bonding. It has to be a caring person who cares all about it very well read, knowledgeable, a bit of a historian. He knows what they're talking about and that's, uh, and they're, you know, unrelenting. They're very good investigators, but they're compassionate too. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.